Second Corinthians chapter 5, and we are going to begin today at verse 8. All right, great, great, great. Time to start. And before we begin studying the scripture, we're going to pray, ask the Lord's blessing on uh, the study of the word and our worship service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather in your name to um, set ourselves under the authority of Scripture that you might speak to us, correct us, enlighten us, give us wisdom and all things that we need. Thank you, Lord, that we know that your word is true and our Lord Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us through the word. Lord, we pray also for those that are scattered around the world who have maybe home fellowships or in some cases they haven't been able to find uh, the remnant in their city. We pray that you would bring your word just as powerfully to them that it might also do the work of sanctification and uh, that you do by the means of grace. And Lord, we thank you and we commit this Sunday morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're studying this section where Paul discusses the fact that this life is temporary, but Christians have hope, and our hope is an eternal hope. And last week we discussed the verse where it says we walk by faith, not by sight. And now verse 8 says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. So, um, death will usher the believer into the presence of the Lord. This verse is important, a theological verse. For one thing, it refutes the idea of soul sleep. Okay? Because being with the Lord means being in fellowship with the Lord and being conscious of that fellowship, not going off into soul sleep as some have falsely taught. It also tells us that we have reason to be of good courage. While in the body, notice uh, he's picking up on the uh, verse 6, being of good courage, then there's a parenthetical idea. We're home in the body absent from the Lord. And then he picks up the idea of good courage again and says um, that we would be absent from the body to be home with the Lord. So if in the body we have the pledge of the Spirit, as it says in verse 5, we have the Holy Spirit, if we're believers. And if we're out of the body, we'll be actually with the Lord. So either condition is a good one. It's a good condition to have the pledge of the Holy Spirit. And it's a good condition to be with the Lord. So, it's literally true that um, it says in the Bible to not fear them who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy the body and the soul in judgment. So, we ought to fear God and not man. Now, let me see here. I've got to find some citations. First of all, let's do some cross-references See, everybody is not sitting in a front row because they think they're going to get out of reading. I think I will. Eric? 
<laughs> Eric, if you could do Psalm 73, 23 through 26, and Lawrence, uh, John 17, 24, and then name Joan. <laughs> Joan. Uh, Philippians 1, 20 to 24. Philippians 1, 20 to 24. 23? Psalm 73, 23 to 26. All right. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Wow. I think we used to sing a song based on that. Okay, and then the next one is John seventeen twenty four. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay, so Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying for the disciples, and in his prayer was that they'd be with him and behold his glory. So Christ, when he's raised from the dead, is going to bodily ascend into heaven. So when Paul says to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord, Jesus affirmed that in his prayer that they would behold him. So when we die, we will see Jesus in his glory, according to John 17 and verse 24. Then um, the Philippians 1, 20 to 24, this, this is Paul. According to my earnest hope, expectation, and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am also hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Okay, good, thank you. So Paul discussed life and death in Philippians, and it was pressing upon him at that moment because he was in prison and was uncertain whether he'd be executed or released. One of those two outcomes was going to happen. But what Paul was rejoicing in in Philippians was that his circumstances had turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Okay? And so that was a good thing. Yes? Another argument against the soul sleep thing, and I just hadn't heard it articulated. But if Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man and Abram, Abraham were conversing in Jesus' parable, by the definition of soul sleep, when Jesus came, then all those guys would have to go to sleep because they were already there, and they were he was active there. It's yeah. not consistent. You can't have the Old Testament saints not having souls sleep, and all of a sudden we do. Yeah, that's a very good argument. That's only in Luke 16. Actually, I was just uh, in a sermon this morning. I'm preaching the, the, last, uh, the, the last so many verses in Luke chapter 8. And in there, there's the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And it says there that her spirit returned. Okay? So... Uh, the, the spirit of the person who dies still 
exists in, in some sort of a conscious state. Ask a weird question too. In Matthew, when the twenty-seven, when yeah. the veil of the temple was torn, yeah. it says, "Then the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints would fall asleep or raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many." Yes. Where did they go? What happened? We know, or is that did they ascend? Or what okay, happened? when I preached on that and researched it back when I was preaching through Matthew, I believe those people were. In my opinion, we're resurrected like Lazarus was, with mortal bodies. And then they probably just died again, rather than immortal bodies like Jesus had. Because otherwise you'd have five people still running around the earth that have been around for 2,000 years. Okay? (laughs) Because if they had immortal bodies, they wouldn't die again, right? So, yeah, they'd either have to ascend like Jesus did, which the Bible doesn't say, or they just had mortal bodies and they died, like Lazarus. And, his, well, Jairus' daughter. You know what's interesting also about that? In these accounts, now in Paul's case, in Second Corinthians 12, where he talks about having seen the third heaven and saw inexpressible things that it's not lawful for, for a man to utter, but if there are people who had died and were raised again. Jairus' daughter is one, and Lazarus is another. But you, they never say anything. And in fact, when it says when uh, Jairus' daughter was raised, uh, they f- give her something to eat. Now, you would think the first thing to do is conduct an interview <laughs> or write a book. You know, nowadays when somebody claims to have gone to heaven, they always write a book and cash in on it. And, and I don't believe these books. I do not believe these claims. And for whatever the reason, people in the Bible, now this Jairus' daughter was only 12 years old, so if she lived a long life after that, she would have many years to tell everybody what it was like. But as we said earlier, or in other classes in Luke 16, it says if they have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't believe those neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. And so we saw in the case of Lazarus, he was raised from the dead, and then they decided they wanted to kill him. You know, and it shows the fickleness of human beings because they were... Here, here, here this, there was this lamentation, and I'm going to talk about that in the sermon this morning, about the Jewish lament at death and how they actually hired people. They were professional lamenters. And the more, rich, the more rich you were, the more loudly they wailed, and the more of them you could afford to hire. So in the case of this sermon this morning, they, they went from this beating on their breasts and, and wailing to laughing in a moment. Yeah, okay, because when Jesus said he was gonna, she just wasn't dead, they laughed at him. Well, they couldn't have been mourning that badly if they suddenly are laughing. But, it, but in the case of Lazarus, it's very interesting that there was this lamentation going on. And then not too long after that, after he was raised from the dead, they wanted to kill him. So they were all sorrowful that he was dead, and then they were even more mad when he was alive. Yeah, because he was a living testimony that Jesus was the Christ. Because there was, he was a living proof of the, of the deity of Christ. So he speaks to the dad and they come to life. Yes, Carla. Um, I think you answered this before, but I forgot what you said. Okay. 
So what happens to everybody who is not saved when they die? Um, we go they go to Hades. They go to Hades, but they don't immediately go to the lake of fire. As I understand the book of Revelation, when I, I, I preached through that back in 99, uh, according to the book of Revelation, the first two people to go into Gehenna, the lake of fire, is the devil, the, false, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Yeah, Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in there. And then after they go there, the great right throne judgment happens in Revelation 20. And then the names are read and everybody's name moves. They're, the wicked are resurrected at the very end of the millennium. Okay? Again, I'm telling you how I understand it. And not everybody's going to agree. But they're resurrected because it says in Daniel 12, too, that, and in John 5, I believe 24, that there'll be a general resurrection. Because every knee will bow and every tongue Yeah, will exactly. So the, the people who were in Hades, like the rich man, um, in, in Luke 16, will get a resurrected body to stand before the great white throne judgment and find out that their names weren't in the book. And at that point, they are consigned to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, at the very end of this whole uh, history, uh, human history, history begins with creation and ends with judgment. Every, uh, every uh, sentient being that's in opposition to God, be it a human or demon or fallen angel or Satan or Antichrist or whatever, um, shall all be consigned to the lake of fire. And that's where they'll stay forever, separated from God. And then the good angels and believers and people of faith, whether it was people in the Old Testament or after the cross, all are saved by faith the same way. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. They shall be forever with the Lord in resurrected bodies. Okay. Okay. Um, at one point it says that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. I thought hell and the lake of fire were one and the same. Okay, Cheryl, that's a good question. The reason it says um, death and hell were tossed into the lake of fire is because the King James translates the word Hades as hell. And um, it says in uh, Revelation 1, and I believe verse 17, that Jesus has the keys of Hades, okay? And so the newer translations, like the New American Standard, transliterate the Greek word, Hades, because what you said, Cheryl, it creates confusion. Because uh, Hades is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament word, word Sheol, okay? And Sheol mainly has a range of meanings, but uh, sometimes it means death, sometimes it means the grave, sometimes it does mean hell. And so the King James often translated Sheol as hell. But then, but it didn't always do that because the uh, people like David go to Sheol. And, and so, you, so it creates a confusion. So what the newer translations do is just transliterate Sheol as Sheol, Hades as Hades, and then Gehenna is another word altogether. Gehenna 
is the word translated, should that literally deserves to be translated hell. That's the lake of fire. Okay? All right. Good question. I was going to say one more thing on the begins in creation and ends in judgment. Barnhouse has a book where he says time started when there was God, when he was existed only, there was one will in the universe. There's just one will in God because God had one will. And when sin came, the sin was found in, in, in Satan first. Yes. That you started time because then you had two wills in the universe. Interesting. And ultimately, when everything's, every sentient being's cast into uh, the lake of fire, even though we're humans, all the, there will be one will again in the universe, and there won't be two wills. It will just be the will of God. Yeah, one of uh, one of our listeners and readers uh, sent me a. He emailed me. He says, "I got a book. I'll give you for free, but you've got to you got to act now." <laughs> Uh, this guy named Herb, real nice. I was hoping to meet him at Jan's conference, but his travel plans changed. And he sent me this book by Barnhouse about spiritual warfare. So I, Keith spends a lot of time in the airport, so I let him read it, and he thought it was great. Um, there was only one will in the universe until Satan rebelled, because everything was before that was doing God's will. Okay, now there's two wills, evil and good. Okay, and God tolerates evil, God began tolerating evil a long time ago, whenever it was Satan rebelled, all right? And he allows history to go on. So when people are asking the question, why does God, why is there evil? If there's a good God and he created the whole world, why is there evil? That's what the atheists are saying, like it's the atheist mantra. Uh, That's their only argument against God is the fact there's evil in the world. The biblical answer is because God's a merciful God. And God allowed history to go on after Satan's rebelling in order that salvation and redemption history would happen. And so that there would be a people ultimately to praise him. Yes. So one other question. If, uh, if when we die, we go right away to be with Christ, yes. then what's the difference in, this, in our state? I mean, obviously the trumpet hasn't sounded, so we're not changed yet into his likeness so what i mean are we're not sinning but yet we're not changed so how does that work we talked about that a few when when you were still at the cabin but that's okay she was singing up yeah yeah see if you were in that that cabin then you know these things (laughs) no i was just kidding carla (laughs) anyhow um there, there's kind of an already not yet, and I read some uh, scholarly material on that, and there isn't much said in the Bible about that. All we know is that we're with the Lord, and it's not yet the co- totally completed state. And, it, and earlier, Paul called it being found naked. Okay? In other words, there's, there's an intermediate state between death and receiving the resurrected body at the last trumpet, that is not fully explained other than we know that, that we're conscious and we can see the Lord. Abraham and yeah. Yeah. And so it's a spiritual state and there's still an already not yet. And so the, when we're in the intermediate state, we'll still be looking forward to the resurrection. And, and it says that the dead in Christ will raise, rise first. And so if you put this together, the picture, we can't imagine it because it's a reality beyond anything we've seen. But, but what we read would indicate that the people who have died 
throughout church history and the Old Testament saints, I believe, will be coming back with the Lord. Okay? And, and then people that are still alive will meet the Lord in the air. So the people still alive are immediately changed in the twinkling of an eye, as it says in First Corinthians 15, and caught up to meet the Lord, as it says. Uh, but the dead in Christ will rise first. So somehow the people coming with Jesus get a resurrected body at the rapture. And then we, we are immediately transformed. Now, I mean, this has never happened. Okay? So the Bible is describing an event that we don't have anything to totally compare it to. And so I, remember, I know there's been times when I'm doing funerals and, and people would sit down and ask me about this. And all I can say, tell you is what the Bible says. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it? But um, and, and there's all kinds of things we can't understand. What if, somebody, what if somebody died because a nuclear bomb was dropped right on their house? Well, you know, the molecules are pretty dispersed. Okay? So how could God find a body to raise if, 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 if there's just nothing there? But the reason, and I mentioned this before, the reason it says that the sea will give up the dead in Revelation is because the, the Jewish people were very much of the opinion that what happened to your body and how you were buried was very significant as far as your hope in the life to come. And you can see that when you go to Jerusalem, when you see all the graves in, in the Kidron Valley. And there's graves, 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 graves. And wealthy people over the centuries have spent a lot of money to be buried near the eastern gate of the old city because they thought they'd get a better resurrection. They wanted to be first in line uh, when, in, in the age to come. And so... Um, the, the Jews were afraid of the sea. This was something that uh, Ryan was talking about in the John class. Uh, the, Jesus walking on the water in, in John 6. The, the, one of the reasons they weren't sailors like the Phoenicians and some of the other people was because if they died at sea, they, they, it, it diminished their eternal hope in their minds because there's no body. And, and they actually buried families together, and they had rooms in some of the graves where the different family members were. And, and they talked about being gathered to their fathers. You know, that's how death is described in the Old Testament. So the, that mindset would say, if I fell off a ship and went down to the bottom of the ocean, that may not only ruin this life, it might ruin the life to come. Because how can there be a resurrection if I'm not in a proper grave in my body? And so... To show that that's not the case, in Revelation it says the sea will give up their dead and they'll be raised. And so that's telling the Jewish mind that there's no condition that would happen to you after death that will stop you from being raised from the dead at the general resurrection. Nothing could stop it. Yes, even... There will be no sea. There will be no what? Sea. Yeah. Yeah, when it says there's no sea, we might see we've got to get inside the Jewish culture and mindset to understand the Bible because the Bible is written by Jewish people, right? So an American says, no sea, that doesn't sound like paradise. I want an island. (laughs) I want a condo in the Caribbean. What do you mean no sea? But, But to the Jews, the sea is the worst possible place. It's where you don't want to go. That's where you die and you never come back again. So some of the characters, that's like, what's that? Yeah, Jonah. I was just going to say Jonah illustrates that. 
Jonah running from God goes to the worst place you could go. Down, he goes down to Tarshish. He goes down to the, to the ship. He goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the sea. So running from God is down, 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 down. But ending up down in the sea is the worst place you could be. And, and, and Jonah illustrates that, yes. When you made the analogy of the nuclear bomb landing on a house, uh, that bringing the molecules back together, well, if you go back to creation, uh, God created something from nothing. So once again, you, it, it's a faith matter, and we would just entrust to the Lord. Yeah, we've got to believe that the Lord will do the right thing. I mean, if we really believe that the exact state we were in when we died was exactly what we're going to be in when we're raised... I think we'd all go on a diet and then die about 30 years old. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the fact is that um, God will give us a perfectly, a resurrection body that will be perfectly suited for whatever we're going to do for all eternity. Even that is a conceptually is. This is a reality that we don't have analogies for. We just have concepts. The idea of living forever and ever and ever, its we can't get our minds around it because it's just not the reality that we know. Okay, But we can trust what God says that is good and it's desirable. If you're a Christian, but the Bible doesn't, I mean, the most undesirable condition would be to go into eternity as a non-Christian. I was going to quote uh, this uh, Dr. Martin, uh, whose commentary on 2 Corinthians has been helpful to me. Now, um, his, the question is, in, in chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul describes um, death in a kind of an undesirable way, being found naked. And so he's describing desire for a resurrection body. But here in verse 8, he says it's desirable. So it seems like a contradiction. So I'm going to read what one of the scholars said about that apparent contradiction. He says this, quote, To adopt this position that 2 Corinthians 5.8 is a reversal of 2 Corinthians 5.3, or even more, a denial of our findings for 5.3, is to assume that Paul or anyone can hold only one view about a certain idea. This, as another scholar suggests, is not necessarily so. Paul could easily have two minds about death. On the one hand, he could shrink from death, for it held possibilities that he would like to avoid. And on the other hand, to be free from this body would lead to a greater level of fellowship with Christ, since the parousia would intervene, bringing to an end all the service in the body. In other words, to die was not the consummation of salvation for Christians, but it was in terms of fellowship with Christ better than staying in the body. So the point is, the, the ultimate thing is the parousia and the resurrection. But it doesn't mean it's undesirable to be with Christ before them. But Paul, and I think we can see those two minds that Paul had on the matter in the passage uh, that, that Joan read from Philippians. He says, I desire on one hand to stay here, it would be more fruitful for you, but on the other hand, it would be better to be with the Lord. So he could think of, of death in both negative and positive terms. Another question. Okay. Does this mean that um, once the trumpet sounds, that even believers in the sea will be raised 
um, to life, I mean, to, um, to meet Christ in the air? Yeah, it says that um, uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So the, the people who have died before, when the trumpet sounds, will see, receive their resurrection bodies, and it won't matter what had happened to that body. If it had been dispersed into a million molecules or a billion molecules and all over the face of the earth, God will still give that believer a resurrected body. Okay? So that would show a different opinion than some who was afraid if you didn't get a proper burial, I would wreck your resurrection. Yes. Isn't it true also that those that reject Christ will also have a resurrected body? They will, but not until the end of the millennium as I understand it. Uh, because you see the great white throne judgment happens at that end of the thousand year when Satan is released. So, so it won't be till then. But they will get a... Yeah, the, the Daniel 12.2 and John 5... We just studied this Thursday night. John 5... Is it 24, 25, 26? I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it on my page here. I just can't... John 5... 21? Yeah, I'll start reading there. This is John's discussion of it. John 5, starting with 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly I, tr- truly, I, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Now, I'm going to read on, but do you see the play on words there? The hearing the voice of the Son of God in the me- now would be hearing the gospel and believing it. And receiving eternal life. So Jesus is preaching on the face of the earth when he was here bodily. And most of the people wouldn't listen to him. They heard his voice, but they didn't hear him. Right? So the ones who hear spiritually and believe the gospel shall live. Alright? Now, But then he goes on because not everybody is going to believe. Uh, so verse 26 shows, Just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. That's an allusion to Daniel 7. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear His voice and shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So that passage is John 5:29 which is stating the same thing as Daniel 12 and verse 2, one of the, uh, one of the actually few passages in the Old Testament that, that explains it this explicitly. So Daniel 12 and verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life. So many will come to everlasting life, Daniel 12, 2. But there's more. But others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So both Daniel 12.2 and John 5.29 teach the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, one to a reward and the other to punishment. Five were righteous and five were sinners. 
both would both groups would get resurrected. Yes, they would. Yes. Now, as I understand it, now, uh, amillennialists think this all happens just once. They would say there's one, Christ comes back, there's the general resurrection, the last judgment, and then that's the end of history. That's an amillennial view. But I am a premillennialist. So I believe that if you, if you read everything it says in the Bible, especially in Revelation and Daniel, and Thessalonians, not, in, in Matthew 24, there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible, that you see that the reality of it is a little more complex than just Christ comes back and his judgment. Because Thessalonians says the believers are caught up to meet him in the air. Uh, Revelation says that Satan will be unloosed for a thousand years. And then after that, you have the great white throne judgment. And then if we get that far today, we're going to study the judgment seat of Christ. And that's just for believers. So if you, if you believe all of these things in the Bible to be literal, then you see a little more complex uh, uh, outworking of this, but it all still happens. Believers are still raised to eternal life, and unbelievers are still raised to eternal damnation, but the timing of it is, is, is more complex than just a very simple thing. And then there's all kinds of other issues, too. Like, for example, during the Great Tribulation, you have all these martyrs, and they're, and they're found in heaven, and you have the Mary Supper of the Lamb, at the end of the tribulation, that's what, at least that's how I read the, uh, uh, the book of Revelation, and, uh, and so on. So there's a complex of events there. So, Well, uh, you also have people during the millennium that still don't believe. So that would be the children to of the people, millennium's views. Yeah. Okay, so during the millennium, there's going, to be, there's going to be people that in mortal bodies who are alive at the end of the tribulation who enter into the millennium. Okay? And those people will have children, and they'll live to be very old, so they'll have a lot of children. And these children, even living in paradise-like conditions, as you read in Isaiah 65, the lion and the lamb and all those passages in Isaiah, so even with Jesus ruling on the throne, uh, everything being the way it's supposed to be, and there's still a massive rebellion when Satan is released after those thousand years of being bound. And then that ushers in the final judgment. Yes. And it's kind of a weird time because you have Jesus who's bodily on earth with resurrected saints who are at that time immortal, ruling over these mortal beings who are bodily on earth. And they might, may not be sinning now. But when the deceiver is released, it's almost like going back to the garden and throwing yeah. back to the garden. They it happens all over again. And um, this vindicates, well, for one thing, you hear people say, well, it's not fair. It's not fair that I have to suffer because of Adam's sin. You know, if I would have been there, I wouldn't have sinned. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I think, yeah, exactly. Well, I think that what happens at the end of the millennium is proof positive that we would. Then I think often, how could people in the millennium, living in paradise, how could they not believe? But then when you look at when Jesus was, uh, all the signs from the Old Testament pointing towards Christ, and he was right there physically, they didn't believe. So it's not hard then to see why people during the millennium will, would not believe. Yeah, a good point, Brian. And, and if you look at it, unbelief is really very irrational. It is. It's irrational. 
Just think of how irrational it is. You, you, it says in Psalm uh, 19 and verse 1 that heaven's declared the glory of God. So let's just say you're up north and there's no street lights and you go out on the end of the dock and you look up into a uh, clear night and you see all the stars and the universe is vast. And when you, as you ponder that and you think, isn't evolution grand? <laughs> It's amazing how an atomic explosion created this and made it so orderly. There, there's no, it's not rational. It's, there, there's nothing more irrational to believe that order comes out of chaos without any intelligent being having anything to do with the process. But sin is irrational. So if you were alive on the face of the earth, when Jesus actually was here and Jesus did the miracles, and let's say you're there, let's say you're there when Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And they were saying, no, 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 you can't raise this guy. He's already stinking. He's, his body is four days. He's rotting. You don't want him out of that grave. <laughs> and, and, and so you're there, and out comes Lazarus, and you're thinking, all right, we better kill him now. Because otherwise people will believe. Sin is irrational. It's, it's endemic to the human race. In Adam all sinned. And it will damn our souls if there's no cure. And I say cure figuratively. Sin isn't a disease. It's a state of rebellion against God. But it does have its horrible effects on the human being, including the darkening of the minds. And it says that in Romans 1, their minds were darkened. And the only thing, the only thing that can do anything to resolve that problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the glory of God shines into those darkened hearts and we believe in the Holy Spirit, we're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly everything is different because now we see the truth. And we know, and we know, Absolutely, that God exists and that all his promises are true. So that hasn't been the case for you. Believe the gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, um, so to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. And then verse 9 says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Then let me read verse 10, which we, I don't know if we'll get to today. Now, why should we be pleasing to him? Verse 10, for we must, the word must in the Greek, day, means by necessity. It's a strong word, a necessity. There's a necessity to appear before the judgment seat, Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now we're learning more. Not only do, are, is there a judge, great white throne judgment, where if your name is in the book of life, you're ushered into eternal joy. If your name is not in the book of life, you're ushered into the lake of fire. But there's also a judgment seat of Christ that we have to appear before. And that even though our sins are washed away and we, are, we have eternal life, we still have, it still matters what we do. Now, people have asked me this over the years. They've said, well, if we're saved by grace through faith, and if eternal life is a gift from God, and that all of our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus, then why does the Bible keep saying 
we're going to be judged according to our deeds. It says that in Romans 2. It says that here in this passage of 2 Corinthians 5. And it says it in many other places. Now, let me explain that. I want to, okay, and then, okay, there, there's a program, there's something we need to realize. If it were not true, if, 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 let's just say it's, we didn't have this verse and we, and we knew that it didn't even matter what we do in our bodies and that we're going to have the exact same reward whether we spend our life as Christians in sloth and apathy and neglect and sin without even concerning ourselves about sanctification or if we were striving to please the Lord, as it says here, there's, you'd create kind of an antinomian doctrine because you'd be ultimately saying it doesn't matter how you live. And the Bible never teaches that. It matters how we live. And that's true for believers and unbelievers. And I'm going to say something that I've believed for many years and I can defend it biblically. There are degrees of reward for believers and degrees of punishment for unbelievers. Okay? And we don't live in an antinomian universe. What, what's an antinomian? Well, yeah, against the law. Against the law. We don't live in a world where it doesn't matter. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, um, when he talked about determinism and, and some of the really hideous philosophies that are held by humans in, in the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer used to say that in that kind of a universe, it makes no difference whether you help a, a crippled person across the highway or run, run her over with a car. Schaefer used to say that. So you can't, what kind of a universe is it when, when it doesn't make any difference whether you maim or heal? And, and he says that's abhorrent and that's not the biblical worldview. And we, we, we believe that our actions are important whether we even, even for unbelievers, that, that there's going to be a difference. And it says, it talks about the ones that receive greater damnation. And, and, and Jesus says that. They'll receive greater punishment. Yes? Um, when, when he speaks about, uh, the, you know, that when you're in heaven, your, your works, if, if none of them are worthwhile, they'll be burned as if wood, hay, and stubble. And it is, in a sense, you're saved, but isn't that a punishment in the sense that that everything you've done is burned and... and yeah, uh, that's a good point. That's from second, 1 Corinthians 3, which I think next week I'm going to turn to that because I still haven't done a verse before this. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, it's not what we want. I mean, obviously Paul is trying to motivate the Corinthians because they weren't behaving very well. If you read the story of the Corinthian church, they had, they had idolatry, they had immorality, they, they had... Uh, false teachers, they had this hyper-spirituality that was a strange mix of super-apostles teaching antinomian doctrines. Um, you have a lot of bad stuff in, in Corinth, so Paul tells them that their works can be totally burned up, but you still be saved as by fire. Now, the Catholics take that to teach purgatory, but that's, that's their purgatory proof text, but I don't believe in purgatory. Go ahead. Um, how do you reconcile the fact that anything good that we do is, is, is from God, and it's through it's, it's God that sanctifies us and, and enables us to do good? Um, so where does human responsibility and our will come in versus you know, okay. God? Okay, good point. Everything that we do good is from God. Well, that's why when we get there, we'll give all glory to God. 
But the Bible does talk about human responsibility, and it's real. And let's put it this way. We're very strong teachers of means of grace at Twin City Fellowship. And we reinforce that idea again and again and again. And the reason for that is that we believe that God uses means to do his work of grace. Okay? So to answer your question, Troy, I think we do have the choice to set ourselves under the means of grace, to put ourselves under the teaching of the word, and to, uh, and to, uh, to obey God and gather together for fellowship, as it says in Hebrews, and that if we do not do that, we're robbing ourselves of God's means and we will rob ourselves of virtues that he doesn't develop in our life. Okay? But, but if we do sit under the means of grace and God does sanctify us and we, I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it's a work of grace, it's the work of God. If you get excited about the gospel, it's because God did something. All right? Okay? And, and so you get excited. You want to go preach the gospel. Why? Because you're excited about it. Why do you get excited? Because you hear it preached every Sunday and it's coming in your heart and mind through the Word. Okay? So I would say this. Yes, we have responsibility. But the means of grace teaching says there's still God doing it. Now, if we just stayed home and never sat under the teaching of the Word, listened to false teachers because they tickle our ears... We shall not grow, we shall not develop, and therefore we'll be having our works burned up. Yes? Okay. Um, your original question, back a few minutes, uh, why does the judgment seat of Christ matter? It matters because God is a God of justice as well as mercy. And I just want to say from nearly 65 years of living that chastening by the Lord ultimately is a life-giving experience. And I am never, I personally, uh, if this is God's attitude that he gives me when I believe is that if I welcome that chastening, I know joy beyond understanding. That's the best I can explain. Good. Yeah, but I do, and I'm not. <laughs> and it, it ain't fair. They, they, give me, they give me the senior rate at the golf course just because I go with Dick. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd just like to add to that and say that it is a matter of attitude and our willingness to be open to the Lord, and that's why he asks us to have the mind of Christ within us so that we may be able to do these good things and give glory to him and witness to others. Amen. Absolutely. And in the context of what Paul's talking about, now let's go back to our verse here so we get this one done. We've got ten minutes. Let's let's get some verses distributed. Um, Dale, uh, 1 John 3, 22 and 23. Michelle, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Well, I changed my mind. <laughs> Teacher's prerogative. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Keith. Carla, Romans 14, 17 and 18. Joanne, Ephesians 5, 10. Dick, Hebrews 13, 21. Now, back to our verse, then we'll read these. Um, Therefore, we have as our ambition, 
And the word ambition in the Greek is philotimumetha, which is from the word for love, phileo, and the word for honor. So the word ambition means to aspire to honor, to love honor. In other words, to, to want to live an honorable life before God, to aspire to honor. And then pleasing can be translated also well-pleasing. And so the, the Christian aspires to live an honorable life that would be pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's what Paul's teaching. Okay, now 1 John 3, 22 and 23. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his, his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Okay, so the, to be pleasing in his sight, we keep his commandments. And the commandment is that we obey the gospel, that we believe, and that we love the brothers and sisters in Christ that he gives us. And, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, the thing that destroys the church is false teaching because the truth sets us free. The truth, according to John 17, 17, sanctifies us. The truth will always focus us on the gospel. Right? We'll become gospel-centric. The truth is, draws us together in unity. All right? And so these things happen. We do love one another because we're being nurtured in the truth. But when you start hearing false teaching, it always diverts you away from what God would be doing to change your life. Okay, Michelle? Second Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Wow. Let's talk about practicing these things. Good point. You know, like your question, Troy. Um, how do you make your calling and election sure if calling and election is something God does? Well, the answer is live like a Christian. Because it's a sign that you've been regenerate if you want to live like a Christian. I remember, uh, remember those uh, John Gerstner tapes that we watched, Keith and Carla, Dick, when we watched them? Somebody, um, a lot of other people are watching them too. Okay, the, John Gerstner was teaching basically Reformed theology but a question came up to, that somebody would, would, he talked about how people would ask him this question. Because he would run across people that have been in church all their life that struggled, am I one of the elect? And they have, and they have doubts about their salvation. And so, his, his, he said, so when they asked him, well, what should I do? Maybe I'm not one of the elect. And what he says was, seek God. Put yourself under the gospel and listen to it. Go to church and do what the Bible says. Oh, <laughs> okay. Make your calling and election sure. Uh, obey God. He also said, though, gets back to the point you're just talking about. But even if you're not one of the elect, sit under the teaching and live according to it. Because if you're not, you still will be less damned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he says you'll be less damned. <laughs> you'll have you'll, it'll go better for you no matter what. <laughs> I like that. I just wanted to say that. There's a lot of new people. It might be worth mentioning Ryan's book on assurance. Yes, Ryan has a booklet called The Anchor of Assurance. And it's very well done. And Ryan's book lays out the different things that added together give us assurance, both the objective and the subjective. 
the work of the Spirit, the changed lives, the promises of the Bible. It all comes together to give us assurance. But that passage that Michelle just read is that tells us that if we take Christian action, that's where we gain. That's one of the ways we gain assurance. All right, make your calling and election sure. How? Well, by add virtue and loving kindness and the various Christian virtues as you see them develop. Keep. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's Romans 12, 1 and 2, very important. Again, after all of those... All the teaching on um, justification by faith, that's Paul's theme. Justification by faith. Then when he gets to the practical section, he he says, be transformed. Take action. All right. (laughs) For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Yeah, acceptable to God and proved by men. Remember, our passage says, try to do, make it your ambition to be pleasing to God. So, according to Romans 14, 17, if you're walking in the Spirit, which is a shorter list of the fruits of the Spirit, righteousness, joy, and peace, that if, if, if you're serving God in that way, that's acceptable. And it'll be a blessing to the people around you. You'll bless the body of Christ, and it'll be pleasing to God. So the, the, another moral teaching. Yes, uh, Joanne, which verse Ephesians you have? 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. So a Christian wants to know what's pleasing to the Lord. Now, we get, we get stumbled sometimes on our journey. I, when I was a Christian, I first brand new Christian, I mean, I really wanted to know what was pleasing to God. But as I kind of revealed my story in that last CAC article about pietism, I got derailed by hyper-spiritual teachings, okay? And in my trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, I started trying to be more pious than everybody around me. And in not understanding means of grace, I, I ended up, I would do anything to think I was a better Christian. Anything. And if somebody came along and said, well, then sell everything you have and join a Christian commune, I did it. But I didn't have anything to sell, but I joined anyhow. <laughs> so it didn't cost me anything money-wise. Cause, but uh, that wasn't how to be pleasing to God. Y- yes? Uh, Ephesians 5.10. Sorry about that. Ephesians 5.10. Okay, Dick, quick. <laughs> uh, Hebrews 13, verse, I'll start 20 and 21. Okay. It's a benediction. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's the, we use that benediction a lot. I think it's my favorite because it has the gospel in it. So um, it's interesting that uh, we have ethical commands and promises that go together. It's, it's so like, like you were asking, Troy, so Paul prays that God would sanctify Christians, right? So God's going to do it. But then he commands Christians to take certain action that would result in their sanctification. 
So it isn't this either or. It isn't human effort or it isn't just some sort of passivity where I guess God, why am I so sinful? Because God didn't sanctify me. No. Because I'm unbelieving or I'm rebellious or I'm lazy or I'm not doing what God told me to do as a Christian, if I'm a Christian. It's not, we, it isn't God's fault, but then on the other hand, if God doesn't work, nothing will happen. So put yourself under the teaching. Put your, set yourself under the teaching of the Word. Be Bereans. Make sure that it's accurate teaching. Make sure that it really is what the Scripture means. And then as you meditate on that and obey the Scriptures and believe the Scriptures, God will sanctify you. God will change you. Your thinking will change. Your behavior will change. You'll have better relationships with God's people because there'll be more unity because we're on the same page because we're listening to the same voice. God will do these things. And, but we need to take action. All right? Does that make sense? Next week, we'll talk about the judgment seat of Christ and what that's all about. And we'll cross-reference 1 Corinthians 3 about the works being burned up. Try yeah, just on a side note, John MacArthur has a new book out because the time is near that explains a lot of the judgments and it goes through the revelation. Okay, MacArthur has a book on it. It's probably going to be very good.